You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. And Tracy, as of this recording, we are one, two, three, four days away from Ahsoka coming on Disney Plus, and I am going to lose my mind. I mean, I, I have you taken a vacation day from work? Like just to sort no. of like make your mind and body prepared to receive the force? And, and and then watch every single episode of Rebels? No. Oh, yeah. I mean, no. But you should have. And then, now like, you're regretting it. I'm seeing that look on your face. And a couple episodes of of uh the shitty one, Boba Fett. Yeah. <laughs> the shitty one. Poor Tony Mora. He he deserved better. He really did. It didn't. I'm turn very out excited. So great. I'm so excited. I want to pick Ahsoka as my pick, but I haven't seen it yet, and I think that that would be. It might be. On the other hand, like unless we kind of timestamp it in the specific way that we do, I don't know that the listeners always have a great sense of when we recorded these. So you could have gotten away with it. Ahsoka yeah. is has point of place on top of the Hugo Award. Just so you know, she's sitting right there. Well, I mean, to, to bless it. You, yes. You can't yeah. see it, but Ahsoka is there. So I'm very excited. That was just Ahsoka. an excuse for you to point at your goddamn Hugo Award. And I, yes, I know how, it. That's, 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 that's I what I call it. them. When people say, do you have <laughs> goddamn Hugo Awards? Goddamn Hugo Awards. <laughs> uh, we're making things very awkward for our guest right now. Well, we just we just let our guests know that we're not a clean podcast. So if she needs to come. That's true. I have a serious potty <laughs> mouth. We're ready to rock and roll. Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah. That, and the story goes a, that- You're going to need to get a swear jar. Mm, oh, yeah. My kid's college tuition. <laughs> yeah. Right. Why not? There's nothing, yeah. There's nothing worse than your kid going to preschool and saying fuck for the first time. I was that kid for my mother. So I've got it coming, <laughs> you know? Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I remember vividly having a standoff with my mother when I was in high school. Um, and I don't even remember what it was about, but I remember like the kind of electric Dragon Ball Z crackle tension between us as we got in, got into it about whatever the hell it was. And she closed her argument at me about whatever the hell it was about by staring at me for a long, silent moment and saying, may you have the daughter you deserve. <laughs> and I thought to myself like, okay, mom, weird flex. And, uh, Patrick who has met my daughter, um, is is grinning like a like a fiend at this point because he knows that I have in fact gotten the daughter that I deserved. So thanks, mom. Super appreciate it. That was great. What a curse! What a curse! I know. There, I know, right? There, there, there may or may not have been a similar conversation with my mom a long time ago. And notice that I don't have kids. Amazing. So, like I get, maybe according to Ronan. I get yeah. fur babies. I do, but I like there's May no, you have yeah. the dog you deserve. <laughs> <laughs> May you have the daughter you deserve. I'm telling my mother about that one because I think I might have gotten one. <laughs> She's, mm. feisty. She's extremely feisty. So Okay. Spicy it's gonna baby. Be, it's gonna be the spicy time. baby in question, we should say, belongs to Isabel Cañas, uh, who has joined us to talk about vampires of El Norte. Yay. So Thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. I'm, I'm, I was really looking forward to this, and I, I think this is going to be fun. I, I mean, I say this often enough that I, that I worry sometimes that the listeners don't believe me, but it's really, really true that when I was going through the solicitations that I was getting from people about coming on the podcast, uh, whether they were coming from the authors themselves or from publicists, I do read them. Um, and some of them I nope out on like halfway through. I, I feel a little bit like I, I think queried agents must feel like about books and such, um, where I just I have a certain feeling like, no, that's not what our listeners want or like our yeah, listeners right. probably aren't going to be into that or like I'm not into that. I mean, I've definitely made the call sometimes where like, I don't care about your listeners. I'm going to put it on the podcast anyway. <laughs> um, but I read through this and I was like, I want this. The listeners want this. And if they're if they don't want it, they're wrong and we will fix them. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, anyway, that's the beginning of the, the saga of getting you, you on the pod. So, okay. Now that I've bumped this up to such an extreme extent, I'm going to put you in the terrible position of asking you to tell us about Vampires of El Norte. Yes. So Vampires of El Norte is my second novel. Like the first, it deals with Mexican history, horror, and a little 
I'd say a larger smattering of romance than my debut, The Hacienda. It takes place on the Mexico-Texas border in 1846, um, which is uh, the little pocket of the world that my family has hailed from for generations. And it is about Nena and Nestor, two childhood sweethearts who are uh, ripped asunder, I guess you could say, by a tragedy when they're about 13 years old and um, are separated for nine years and are thrown back together again on the road to war because the Mexican-American War has just begun. And um, they have to, they have to a come to grips with one another and sort through their problems, and b uh, defend their home, Rancho Los Ojuelos, from threats both human and supernatural. So What's not to love? <laughs> <laughs> so I think uh, I, when I, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I just say I've I've been to Texas, and several things I remember about Texas. One, it was fucking hot. Yes. Oh my god, it was so hot. <laughs> we were in, we were in San Antonio. I've also been to Houston, and I don't recommend it. But no, um, old, my one of my community yeah. members from PhD used to call it. He was from Houston. Yeah, Houston. Houston's not good. And and Donardo is there. The the from SF Signal is still in Houston, and I feel bad for him. But uh, yeah, San Antonio uh, was where I went to a Worldcon there, and mm-hmm. it was super hot. Uh, there was a lot of uh, Mexican influence and in everything, right? Everything, mm-hmm. like all the architecture, everything was 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 very much there, and the food was amazing. The food is incredible, so, but yeah, there, there's yeah. Mexican influence because it literally was Mexico for a very yeah. long time. So my book is a bit about that because as a Latina and as a Mexican specifically, one question that I fielded over the course of my life has been, "When did your family come to this country?" Whether that's you know a well-meaning question or not, it's another kettle of fish, but I never really had an easy answer because I was like, well, the Cañas part of my family, my grandpa came from Tamaulipas to South Texas in the 1940s. Um, but my grandma's side of the family, like her dad and his family were, they're like from Texas and have been for generations. And I like, as a kid, especially, I was like, I don't know how to answer this question. And I yeah. put on the spot and sweaty and uncomfortable. <laughs> and now as an adult, like having like learn the history that they never teach you in school. The question is not when did my family come to this country, but when did this country come to us? come to your family? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because it was a question of like this is a part of the world, and there are other pockets of the world like this where the border has shifted over people, and so the way that they dealt with that, and the way and the the perspective that they have on that, and the experiences that they lived, you know, that's my. Those are my ancestors. That's my ancestors story. And it is it infuses this book. And so what I hope to do with Vampires of El Norte was to show that little part of the world and the perspectives and experiences that have been erased by the great the great power that is Texas myth making about its origins. (laughs) You know, air quotes, how the West was won. Mm-hmm. Air quotes, remember the Alamo air quotes. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, that was, that's the serious bit of the book, but the fun part of the bit, book is like, there's romance and vampires and hot cowboys. So, you know, I had, I had my cake and I ate it too when it came to this novel. <laughs> I think I, it's like, I, on. go ahead, Tracy. I was going to say on some level, as I was like reading the pitch and then um, reading like, like sample chapter and so on and sort of thinking about it. I was like, I feel like this is um, like from dusk till dawn, if it wasn't tacky. <laughs> like there's a little bit of like, like what what would happen if if you could get someone to sort of get their hands on that kind of premise and that sort of energy and that's kind of locality and 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 have them be like, okay, um, Quentin Tarantino, oh look, a shiny thing over there, go and he gets distracted and like he goes off and does something else and then you're like, okay, it's cool now. Like now, what do we do to make this into into a narrative that feels I don't know. How, how can a narrative be more authentic when it's like also vampires? Um, authenticity is it becomes a bit of a sliding scale at that point. But it's, that was sort of the energy that I was getting off of it. And I kind of adored um, – to say the audacity of it suggests that there that it it's – breaking a rule or it shouldn't be done or something but i guess it's a it's a worthy calling myself out for that like saying that it felt audacious says something about my own expectations about what stories are supposed to look like and who gets their stories told and all of that 
that actually makes I love that because you know when I think when I think back on writing this book like first of all uh, when I like kind of pitched the idea to my husband who's my story doctor like he's a big sci-fi fantasy reader he reads a ton of romance like he, he basically reads whatever I throw at him and then he throws books back at me and I'm like yeah we once did a tally where I think it was like five years ago. So it's probably even worse now, but I, he had read like 40 something books that I had recommended to him and I had read one that he had recommended. Oh, he's such a good husbeast. So anyway, I was pitching the idea to him. I was like, they're vaqueros and then they're vampires. And he was like, so cowboys and aliens question mark <laughs> movie. Mm, yeah. It was like, yes, that is the energy. The, the idea itself is a little unhinged. There's something, uh, I think every review of this book that has come out has been like genre blending. And I've talked a lot about genre blending and bending and, and, and backflips and everything when it comes to this book. And I think uh, the, it's, it's, the premise itself is pretty chaotic. It's like, well, there's the Mexican-American War, so it's a historical novel. Uh, there's a romance, so it's a romance. And structurally... It is a capital R romance and that it has a happily ever after ending. Uh, it's horror because it has vampires. And we're talking like pretty monstrous, like cousin of the Chupacabra type. Yeah. No pretty sparkle vampires. No pretty sparkle vampires here. And uh, so, and it's also a Western. There's also like a bit of a road trip. You know, it, there's a lot going on. And so the book itself, I, I cannot believe I had the audacity to write it, Tracy, because it busted my ass like <laughs> as books do yeah, halfway into next Tuesday trying to write it and like I'm glad it actually took off and became a thing because for a while there it was looking a little unlikely yeah yeah I mean the world of marketing does like things that fit into tidy little boxes so they can go 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 down this carefully railroaded path we're like actually great this is amazing we can break into the romance market and I was like Yes, but are they okay with creepy crawlies? <laughs> so, like, my husband, like, also monitors my Goodreads reviews. I'm not allowed on Goodreads. I don't believe any author should ever look at their Goodreads because Goodreads is a dark and dangerous place, uh, first of all. Second of all, reviews are for readers. But he will scroll through and occasionally, like, read me a five-star review just to, like, you know, pat me on the head and tell me it's very sweet. Um, but he said, yeah, pretty much the TLDR is, like, the people who love the Hacienda for horror come to Vampires of El Norte and are like, oh, it's not scary enough. And then the people who were who loved the Hacienda for the the kind of forbidden romance between the priest and the protagonist uh, came to this book and were like, fuck, yes, give me more romance. So I think I think this book will appeal to many readers and many listeners of your podcast, I hope, because there are so many things to like in it. But yeah. It's spooky. My mom says my brand should be spookies and smoochies. There you go. That's adorable. Spookies and smoochies. It's Valkanya, spookies and smoochies. Nice. Yeah, you get a whole like banner kind of slogan thing going on there. Yeah, people have t-shirts. So, so yeah, so there's your there's your your convention ribbons that you hand out. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Spookies and smoochies, yeah. Yeah. People will take that and they'll be like, I don't know what this means, but I'm doing it. Just sneak your little URL <laughs> underneath there it. and yes. you you got it. Yeah. Yep. Sure. So okay. So having just talked about spookies and smoochies and the kind of um the, the kind of more genre romp aspects of this, I can't help myself. I, like you, am a recovering academic, except I don't know that I'm recovering very well because I still, I, I like I literally say. work in academe. It's like yeah. kind of my job. So, yeah. Um, so I can't but pick up a concept and sort of roll it around in my head and go, wait. And so thinking about it in terms of like Hacienda um, as, a, as also a historical horror um, and Vampires of El Norte um, as a historical horror thinking about it and and i keep coming back to the idea that the the time period this specifically being the beginning of the united states's encroachment on mexican territory and its war to claim parts of mexico um thus creating the american southwest as we envision it now that on some level vampires are the perfect colonial monster yes 
Because if you think about what vampires do, vampires are colonialism. Yeah. And you're from the University of Chicago, so I'm just going to let you loose on that. Yeah. So actually, I went when I when I was starting to come up with this book, I, I told you it kicked me halfway into next Tuesday, and I was worried that I was shoehorning in this speculative element, these vampires, because I had this idea, and then it kind of got scrapped, and so I had to pick up the pieces. I had one character that was really working, that's Nestor, um, and I was like, he's perfect, that's great, and his background is from South Texas, and my editor was like, make the whole book from South Texas, why don't you? And I was like, oh my god, yes, but then the vampires how this worked i sold my publisher a vampire book so i must make this work somehow and i went to my mom's apartment and i was pillaging her books as i have a habit of doing <laughs> and um i often come home with one or two that definitely don't belong to me i'm looking at them on the shelf right now <laughs> but i found i was reading she has she is from south texas she grew up in san benito if any of you know where that is Wow, I'm impressed. Um, it's basically near Brownsville in South Texas. And I, she did her master's thesis on, um, I guess you could say the experience of growing up on the border. And so there's a lot and the border itself. So there's a lot of Texas history, Mexican history on her shelves. And so I was pulling apart books and trying to like, you know, just kind of bathe in them, just kind of soak it in, trying to like just catch some vibes, find something that'll lead me in the right direction, as I usually do at the beginning of researching a novel. I'm just kind of sniffing around, waiting for something to really catch. And I read a quote by a Tejano politician from, um, I think the 18, yeah, it was the 1850s. His name is Cheno Cortina, and he was a rancher and an outlaw. They called him the Rio Grande Robin Hood and a politician. And he wrote in 1859, so after South Texas had become a part of from had transferred from Mexico to the United States. He wrote to the Mexican people who were living in that area. So um, people like my ancestors and people like Nana and Nestor, he was writing to inspire them to like stand up to the Anglo settler colonists, uh, for lack of a better term, who were coming in and taking their land by often quite nefarious means, sometimes murder, sometimes hoodwinking and taking advantage of the fact that um, these new Mexican citizens of the United States did not have good enough command of English to understand like property deeds and things. Anyway, he said, vampires in the guise of men came and scattered themselves in the settlements because your industry fed the avarice that led them. That's slightly paraphrased, but I have the book, I have the quote at the end of the book in the author's note. And I, like, when I say my jaw hit the floor, it hit the floor and I had to bend over and pick it back up because I was like, in 1859, this politician looked at these Anglos, these invaders, um, and said, they are like vampires and they're because, and they're avaricious and they're coming to take your land because your industry and your prosperity excites the avarice which led them and i that was where everything just kind of gelled because wherever like, that dude is buried he needs an ofrenda like, really <laughs> like, <laughs> like let us all go pay tribute to chena cortina because he dude knew what was up and i think that was where things really started to gel for me because i was like damn i don't know what this man was reading but it wasn't dracula because that shit was not published yet it wasn't carmilla because that was not published <laughs> It wasn't Karl Marx or Engels talking about capital as a vampire because that was not published yet. I don't know what stories were circulating at that time. I did a ton of research on folklore, though. Um, I don't know where he came up with this with this analogy, but I was sold. I was like, done. You know, I think when it comes to I did the Clarion West writing workshop in 2018. And one thing we talk about when we talk about speculative literature and coming up with ideas um, is making the phrase escapes me, but it's like actualizing the metaphor or making the metaphor real. And this was for me, like, I'm just going to make what he said. Like, so he makes this analogy. These Anglos are like vampires. I'm going to make that real <laughs> and just pop it right in the book. And so the speculative element to me no longer felt shoehorned in. It felt as organic as a vampire could be to South Texas. So I was, that's the origin really of how my research really started to inform. This yeah. Story. Yeah. And I, I imagine That's that awesome. as, as he proposed that as the sort of like 
mobilizing metaphor in this letter that he was envisioning mostly that idea of like the vampire comes, it attacks you, it draws your life out of you to sustain itself. But I think the metaphor of colonialism, like you can keep pushing it even further than that, because in doing that, that is how you make more vampires. And so in drawing your life into itself, the vampire makes you like it so that you too need to kind of conform to its ways in order to survive. You now only survive by following the rules that govern how it survives and by perpetuating this sort of cycle. Exactly. And so when you look at the history of South Texas, um, the assimilation and cultural erasure and um, is a very powerful force. And it's a powerful force in my own family. And I think of it as a it is an enormous tragedy when you think about the way of life that these people had for, you know, 150, 200 years, suddenly having to, I mean, these people basically, I mean, this is a bit flippant, but they looked up and suddenly they were the citizens of another country, a hostile country, an invading country. And so how do you grapple with that on a personal level? How do you grapple with that on a cultural level? I think there's you know, when I was studying the folklore of this period, there's like a drop off in the early 20th century of a lot of the folklore. And that's when people started to study it rather than live it and like, like tell stories to each other because of the cultural erasure that happened because of forced assimilation and the pressure to assimilate. I know that was a very powerful force in my family um, because of, you know, that's how you succeed and also racism. So it is, so when I was was coming to this historical period, researching it, it really hit close to the bone a lot of the time in ways that I didn't anticipate because researching the Hacienda kind of felt, you know, it's set in a part of Mexico that my family doesn't hail from the story of the Mexican War of Independence is far enough back in history that I was, I mean, 1821 is not very far speaking as a medievalist um, or recovering medievalist, but I, it did not feel as close to home as researching this book did. And so one thing I really struggled with was how I knew I wanted this book to have not a happy ending per se, but I knew I wanted the romance to conclude happily. And I was like, how do I write a happy ending in this period? Because this is a period that is the beginning of a cultural death frankly. And it was kind of tricky to try and hit the right note and end it in the right place. So as the book, I mean, no spoilers, but as the book concludes, the war is still ongoing. So we haven't hit that, you know, Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, which then made Alta California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas a part of the United States. But yeah, it was, it was actually like, (laughs) very emotional (laughs) researching this book. It's really interesting. I uh, I have to, I mean, this kind of piggybacks off of the research thing. And we've talked to a number of different writers over the years who have written historically grounded fantasy or historically, you know, or, or alternative histories of various kinds. And, um, and different people have answered this and had different experiences with it in different ways. So, so I have to kind of lob it in your direction. I'm excited. Have you ever encountered a reader who who responds to something in your book with like excitement or incredulity or whatever? And they're like, how did you come up with this idea? And you're like, I kind of didn't because it happened. Like, does that do you find I wonder, especially because, again, you've mentioned several times that I don't think most Americans know anything about the Mexican War of Independence or the process of sort of colonizing Mexico. And so I think that's a that has to have been a more frequent experience for you. Yeah, I think as a a non-white writer of historical fiction or as a lit, like a Latina writer of historical fiction, one thing that I grapple with is the pressure that some readers bring and I think not just to my work but to the work of authors of color who write anything historically derived or at large is the pressure they kind of expect our work to be didactic in some sense. Like, what am I going to learn about what the Mexicans believe when I read this book? It is, in a way, kind of its own colonial resource extraction, resource exploitation kind of exercise. It's like, what will I mine from this? And um, not all, definitely not all readers are like that. Those are outlier readers. And I think one thing that I have encountered um, is a sense, maybe not of disbelief, um, but surprise that 
the society that emerged from colonial Mexico was in fact like a literal caste system. And, a, you know, it's like, well, the entire the Spanish Americas, the air quotes Indies were, I, there was a racial caste system in place for hundreds of years that, you know, there was a law that was passed in 1821 in Mexico after it became independent that what that eradicated the caste system but you know that shit doesn't disappear overnight you know you can say there is a law declaring no racism in America tomorrow and um there will still be racism so <laughs> i think that was one thing i encountered was not disbelief but just kind of like head scratching like oh how curious the mexicans are racist too and indeed enormous <laughs> Colorism and racism in Latin America, and that's one thing that my work grapples with. I think in Vampires of El Norte, it was not at the forefront, but it was certainly present as well. Because whenever you talk about class in Latin America, you or in Latin American history, you are also talking about race. The two are very tightly intertwined because of the way that resources um, were exploited in the colonial period and the way that. Uh, that legacy has continued economically through over the years. So when you look at the ranchos in South Texas, there is not because it's it's independent Mexico where the 1840s independence was in 1821. Um, there is no caste system, but there are racial differences between Nena's family who are landowning um, whiter uh Mexicans who's who have the land that they have because it was given to their uh, forebears by the Spanish crown and people like Nestor who is a vaquero he's a worker um, he is when I was doing my research one thing I discovered is like okay there were groups of there were rough broadly broadly speaking two groups of um, colonists because you know Mexicans did colonize this land from indigenous people, Spaniards did, um, who ended up in South Texas. There were the landowning class who were the land grant families, so to speak, who were given the land by the Spanish crown and then the workers. And these workers, some of them came in groups from parts of Mexico that were further south, like San Luis Potosí, um, I think Michoacán. Um, more like South Central Mexico, Central Mexico, and moved north because there was the promise of work. And so they were like, oh, well, these 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 ranchers are going to the very far north, you know, the rugged, the rugged Chichimeca or like kind of like the the Badlands, you know, here be dragons land. Um, they need workers. So let's go. So there was movement of people um, from central Mexico north. And those people had more indigenous backgrounds. So. Mm-hmm. I don't talk about it as like in your face as I do in the Hacienda in Vampires of El Norte. But whenever you talk about class in uh, Latin American history, you're talking about race too. So I did have to grapple with that. And I hope it does not come as a surprise to readers of my first book. (laughs) But maybe, you know, the Hacienda and Vampires of El Norte are sisters, not twins. And so you don't have to read them in order. They're not. There's I personally think of them in a larger shared universe, but they are not, uh, one is not the sequel of the other or prequel of the other. So you can come at them from any direction you want. Um, But there is that shared aspect of the kind of themes that I grapple with historically in the Hacienda also exist in Vampires of El Norte, but in a very different setting. One of my favorite characters, and, and it's always difficult to look back at things that you loved in your childhood because they don't always uh, they don't always look great in a modern lens, <laughs> but one of my favorite characters, yeah. yeah, one of my favorite characters growing up was Zorro. Yeah, I loved Zorro, and 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 that if you look at it through kind of a little bit of what you're talking about with the caste system and and the Spaniards owning the land and the, like that was that was like part of that that was that was the heart of that story was Don Diego de la Vega you know, is the landowner, but he, he sees the, the people are, are suffering under the, the rule of the Spanish and he wants to fix it. By the way, I, we mentioned beforehand that I was born in Chicago, but I, I actually spent most of my formative years in California. So did I. And, so did and like born in the suburbs ended up in Orange County for nine years. Oh, see, I was in Fresno of all places. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, I went to Catholic school, 
and 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 Tracy, you were talking about most Americans not knowing a lot of the history. One of the things that we always did in Catholic school, like our 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 uh, field trips were to the missions. Of course. So we ended up going to the missions that were. I'm sorry. Say that again. Did you go to ever go to Mission San Juan Capistrano? Yep, and also San Juan Batista. Yeah, San Juan Capistrano is where I was living. So the mission oh, okay. itself. Yeah, the mission itself. You know. Anyway, continue your thought, and then I have lots of about that. No, I, as you can say, so like we we would get we would get the filtered view of that history through Catholicism. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is always it, it's oh, always like guys. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, hey, we're, you know, we brought God here and we helped everybody and it was wonderful and everybody. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's not really, <laughs> that's not really what? it. But, but that's the history that we got. Yeah, it's very sanitized coming through the Catholic Church because I think, yep, I think most Catholics do not think about, most Catholics in the Americas do not think about the, um, cultural genocide that was perpetuated no. by the Catholic church. And, you know, that's all I'll say about that for now, because I'm have to <laughs> well, I, I, I will say more. I will, I will say more because I'm, I'm more comfortable talking about it. But like uh, one of the things I had to learn about was my patron saint of uh, Patrick, right? Yes. St. Patrick, yeah. who who drove the snakes out of Ireland. Well, that sounds like a great story. You know, get rid of all the creepy crawly snakes. No, he yeah. went after druids. He was getting rid of the druids. They don't. Yeah. They don't really say it that way. But yeah. So so anyway, it's it's a it's a it's a different view. But it's 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 something that you if you pay a little bit more attention, you you can you can get through to uh, yeah. It's another example. History. Yeah, it's another yeah. example of myth making. And one thing I try and do with vampires of El Norte is make my own myth. You know, I can't speak for how every person of South Texas extraction <laughs> feels about the history, um, but this is how I choose to folklorify and um, mythologize this period of history. You know, sure. the Anglos in Texas have had their whack at making myths of the, the, their history, and now this is my turn. You know, thinking about the, um, the, the St. Patrick that you mentioned there. Uh, when I was living in Ireland, I remember talking to, uh, cause I happened to be there in the spring. And so St. Patrick's day was, was a thing. And, uh, which is a wildly different thing in, uh, Ireland than it is in the States, but that's a whole other narrative right there. I remember one of my Irish friends at university commenting sort of offhand, like, ah, yes, St. Patrick, who did such a thorough job of banishing the snakes from Ireland that he also banished any fossil record of there ever having been snakes in Ireland. <laughs> um, he really, yeah. he believed in being very careful with his work. <laughs> um, so I thought that was moderately hilarious. Yep. <laughs> All right. So... I think that we're we are at the, the the point where picks of the week is the energy we've got. What do you think? Want to do it? We are at picks of the week. Yes. Picks of the week. All right. I love how just sort of coincidentally, as the the music was doing its thing, and then we got the big explosion. Like Isabel just happened to look off in the other direction and. Probably there was like a real noise of consequence in happening in her world, but it looks sort of like she was like, yes, I look into the middle to look at the picks of the week. They're there, out there in the distance. Um, so, all right, Patrick. Downstairs. Uh, well, yeah, that's, um, that would be a pick anyway. Like, we pick you, mom. Come back. Yeah, <laughs> like, the baby picks me any day of the week. <laughs> yeah, it's a thing. All right. So, Patrick, how, what's your pick for the week? So I, you, you mentioned uh, uh, before we were recording uh, recipes and food and stuff. And I always come at things from a very, I, I feel like I have a unique food perspective because again, Chicago, dad's restaurant was Italian restaurant. You know, he's Irish, but he's running an Italian restaurant. So we have this Italian thing, mom being a hillbilly, we have the Southern thing. And then we moved to California and California is a complete culture shock as far as food. And then I, I totally get into Mexican food uh, as filtered through California. Uh, and 
so I, you know, I, I've always struggled with these different things. Like I, I want to make pizza, but I also want to make an enchilada, you know, stuff like that. And, and, uh, in Colorado, I have had a really hard time making rice of any kind. And I may have picked this a while ago, but I bought, I finally gave up and I bought a little rice cooker and I've used that to make just plain rice. Uh, here and there. And then I, I got to thinking, I wondered if you could do anything else with that rice cooker. Cause it's just, it's the cheapest little rice cooker you could find possibly get. And, uh, I was tired of having to, you know, crunch through my rice as I was eating it. Uh, so I got this little rice cooker and I looked it up and sure enough, you know, they had recipes for it where you could do different things. And so I made the easiest Spanish rice recipe I've ever made in my life. And it was amazing. And it was just a couple cups of white rice, uh, a can of Rotel. I used Rotel. Uh, a couple cups of chicken broth, uh, a small onion that I chopped up, uh, a couple tablespoons of chili powder, some salt, some cumin, some garlic. Mix it all up in this thing, turn it on, let it go. And the one that I have, it cooks until the rice is done and then it just pops up. This little thing pops up and it's like done. And uh, I put all that in there, and it was the best Spanish rice, I swear to God, I've ever made. And it's so simple, so easy. Uh, I, I've always said, said there's something about Colorado. It's it's hard to cook things here that are certain things. Like the beans are hard to cook. If you want to do southern-style beans, you know, butter beans or white beans with a hammock, they're really hard to cook here. Rice, I have found, is hard to cook here. Other people say it's different for them. More power to them. This little rice cooker was wonderful and that spanish rice recipe so there you go there's my pick i made some spanish rice and it was fucking awesome perfect so right, isabel how about you i think so i have two things i have a media thing and then i have a real life thing so by all means past week in the pacific northwest we've had a heat wave and houses in this part of the world are not built for that shit. So (laughs) I suffered. I suffered. I suffered. My husband escaped to his office. Uh, My older sister was in town. And so she and I were just kind of like, you know, the baby's like in her diaper all day because I can't bear to put like a stitch of clothing on her. I was like walking around in sports bra and shorts all day because it was just so hot. And finally, (laughs) it was like, 90 degrees, which I know to some people. And, you know, my family in Texas is like, well, it's 116 in Dallas. I don't know where you're talking about. It's like, we don't have AC, guys. We don't have AC. I sent my husband. I was like, I said to my husband, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. So he went to Costco on Tuesday night at like 8 o'clock at night and bought an AC and installed it that night. And we were able to sleep in an air-conditioned room. The other annoying thing about this house being built in the Pacific Northwest, it's like a craftsman style house. So it's like a little antique-y. Um, all the windows open outward instead of like coming up and down. And so finding a part of the house where you can put in a window unit because it has the up and down. Mm-hmm. Yep. And also like, half the windows don't have screens, which, you know. Not great. No. Um, lots of weird critters end up in the house. Um Anyway, my pick of the week is an AC. If you live in the Pacific Northwest, I regret to inform you that this shit is going to happen every year and it's only going to get worse. <laughs> so, yeah. And yeah. bring any kind of house cooling device uh, that is more powerful for a fan. I recommend it because it improved my mental health enormously. Like I had to do, this was on Tuesday when it peaked at like 90, 91. And my house yeah. was stifling um because of course like the biggest windows in the house are south and west facing because yeah in february when we moved in i was like this is the best house in the world and now i'm like dying like i hate everything yeah i had a virtual launch event on tuesday night for vampires of el norte and i was sweating bullets like you know i have my cute little lipstick and my and, and my eye makeup on and i walked out and like the eyeliner was just like dripping off my face because oh, I was no. because my office was too hot and i was still just sweating bullets so my ac saved my life this week you know it saved my mental health a little bit it it did the most so i highly recommend the other thing is that i went to see the barbie movie and i know i'm late to this but i have a 4 month old so my sister was in town yeah, baby no. 
He was like, you have to see this movie. It was fantastic. It was just great. <laughs> I laughed. I cried. 10 out of 10. <laughs> fantastic. I, I, I want to throw out that window units are great. There's also, if you can find them, uh, there's a portable stand-up unit that's good for one room. I used to have I've one. I've heard about these. Yeah. And and it's easier because all you have to do is uh, you have to put the, there's a condensate drip that goes into a bucket that you have to change out. Yeah. And then it's got, uh, it's got an exhaust that you can actually, any window, you could just stick it on the, on the uh, screen itself. And then you don't have to, you don't have to push the screen out. You don't have to like, it, it just sits there and it exhausts out the window and then nice. blows cool air into the room. And those are really nice, nice if you can find one. So nice. just throwing that yeah, out there. I highly recommend anyone in the Seattle, greater Seattle area, like you made it through this week. It's Saturday when we're recording this. It's much cooler and breezier today, but man, yeah, I see you. <laughs> I see yeah. you. Yeah. The other, the other hack I've seen is you take a shop vac that can do wet and you take the bag out. You fill the shop vac with ice. Uh, you you take the hose off of the suck side, you put it on the exhaust side, and turn it on, and then the shop vac becomes uh, a cool air blower. How interesting! I don't have a shop vac, but that is food for thought for sure. I found myself doing the thing that my mom says my great grandmother used to tell her to do. You know, growing up in South Texas in the '60s, my mom did not have AC, and South Texas was warm, v warm, yeah, ish. Yeah. My mom went to Chicago to go to college. It was the first time she'd like owned more than like one or two pairs of socks. And also the first time she had ever seen snow. So that was a bit of a rude awakening. But anyway, my great grandmother, who was from Nueva Leon, would tell her to like submerge her wrists in cold water for like, oh, okay. until you can't stand it anymore because kind of trick your pulse points. Allegedly, yeah. the blood runs so close to, um, the top of your skin there at that point that it can cool off. I don't know if science, I don't know, but my great grandmother told my mom to do it. So I do it. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. And there you go. All right. So um, we kind of on a bit of a historical frame for today's discussion. So my pick fits in with that to some extent. Um, We of course do tons of games in Shay Townsend. And so one of my picks is a game. Um, And this is a game that is fun on many levels. Uh, One of them being it's, it's a quick play generally about 20 to 30 minutes. um, And it can take a potentially huge number of players anywhere from one up to nine. And so if you've got a crowd coming over, especially a crowd of people who aren't sure if they dig games or not, it's short, um, it onboards people really easily, and it is a ton of fun. Uh, and it's based in, um, in historical precedent, uh, precedent rather. Um, so I, I think it's fair to say it's not too soon to have a game that ends up being inadvertently funny that's about the Black Death. Uh, the game is called Bristol 1350. And as you might guess from the, from the name, it's set in Bristol in 1350. The premise of the game is the plague has overtaken the town and uh, the various communities surrounding it have decided that to save themselves, they are going to close the gates of Bristol and whoever is left inside the gates of Bristol once the, once the gates have closed, you're just screwed, man. So if you want to get out of town and have a chance of either not getting infected or at least not dying inside of Bristol, you better hightail it out. The board itself, first off, it's an adorable little layout because it's uh, from a a producer called Off the Shelf and um, uh, Facade Games, and they look like books. And so when you open up the, the, it looks like a book that's titled 1350, like old style kind of leathery outside. You take it off the shelf and you open it, and it's actually the box that contains the game. Uh, the game board itself is just sort of a rollout um, of, a, of a neoprene mat. And the neoprene mat is this sort of highly stylized, looks a little bit like an illuminated text map version of Bristol 1350. Um, but the, the route that you're trying to go, you're trying to take one of three different carts that are the last carts to make it out, hopefully, before the gates close. There's a timer on the game. Um, and you're trying to kind of shoot some ladders your way out of the town. You and however many other players there are, to a maximum of nine, three passengers per cart, are trying to get on one of these carts. The carts go in a certain order. Once the first cart makes it out, 
there's a sort of timer for how long the other cards have before they can get out too. And you have action cards you get. And the action cards allow you to decide if you're going to try to leap onto a cart to take up a spot in it, if there's one available, if you're going to try and yeet someone off of a cart who's already on it, or if you're going to try to leap from the cart you're on onto a different moving cart. Why would you want to do any of these things? At the start of the game, everyone's secretly given a card that tells them whether or not they have the plague. And based on the number of players, there's guaranteed to be a certain number of people who definitely have the plague. There are rules for transmission, and surprise, surprise, one of them is being in the same cart as someone with the plague for too long. If you are a plague person, the only way you win the game is by making sure no one makes it out. (laughs) Either they all get stuck inside the city with you or everyone who makes it out has already been infected by you. If you so much fun. I know, right? It seems too soon. Um, It's been 700 years. I think we might be okay now. Um, And so the remaining people, of course, don't quite know who has the plague, and that's where the roll cards come in. And so there are roll cards that all the different players have that give them a unique ability, like if you're the sheriff or you're a marshal or you're a merchant or you're a priest or you're this or that. It gives you the ability to do something no one else can, like maybe look at someone's card or be able to shove someone off of a cart without taking a move action to do it or whatever. Anyway, it plays really fast. It's ridiculous. It brings out remarkable um, remarkable interactions and depths of lack of character in your friends. Um, and of course, the game components are like weirdly gorgeous and high end for being this this silly little game that plays in like a half an hour. So if you're looking for something that scales awesomely with wide varieties of different players and numbers of players, stores beautifully on your shelf, um, and teaches super fast. Bristol 1350 could be a real fun experience. I'm good. My sister-in-law's birthday is coming up in October and she and her partner absolutely love, love, love games. Like they go to a board game cafes and come home with like six new boxes. Like my brother, my sister especially is, it's his toxic trait. And I know this is I'm buying this. Sound, this sounds perfect for games night with them. Facade Games has a whole line of these kind of like party game social deduction things that are all designed to look like little books on shelves. There's like a, there's a sixteen there's a sixteen um, sixteen sixty something. Um, I think it's 1660 something Salem, which surprise is you're trying to figure out, you're trying to get each other burned as witches. Um, there's one that's the Tortuga, uh, which is set in, um, set in the Caribbean and you're all pirates. And so you're trying to steal rum from each other. And the last one is, um, Deadwood. Um, and you're in, you're trying to do a bank heist in, in the old South. So. This is perfect. This is perfect. You've set me up for her birthday and Christmas for like a few years. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it's been super awesome talking to you, Isabel. Where can people find your book, find you, and otherwise reward you for your awesomeness with their ducats? Hey, for my child's college tuition, y'all. Um, you can find Vampires of El Norte and the Hacienda wherever books are sold, which is a cool thing I get to say out loud these days. Um, the Hacienda, it is... Today is a uh, August 25th. I'm not sure. Sorry, August 19th. I'm not sure when this airs, but the Hacienda is on sale in ebook form at most major retailers until August 25th. So I don't know. You might have missed it. If you don't, maybe pick it up. Um, Vampires of El Norte is um, available in hardcover, um, audio, and ebook. I highly recommend the audio. Uh, I both the Hacienda for both the Hacienda and Vampires of El Norte, I got to pick the actors from a set of auditions that um, the Penguin Random House producer sent me. And oh my God, do these people knock it out of the goddamn park. They are incredible. Like it's the sort of thing where other writers will understand when my husband was listening to the Hacienda's audiobook out loud, I literally forgot it was my book because the actors were so, <laughs> I was like, oh my God. It took a minute for it to register, like, holy shit. And then I wanted to dive under the couch and never be seen again because, ew, being perceived. Um, Vampires of El Norte is also performed just, it is unreal. It is unreal. I can be found on the interwebs. Um, on Instagram, Isabel Cañas underscore, so C-A-N-A-S. 
Um, I can also be found on isabelcanyes.com and my newsletter is, uh, you can find a link to that on my website. Um, isabelcanyes.com also has my short stories, which are my babies near and dear to my heart that nobody ever seems to read. So if you want to have a gander at those, um, one of my more recent picks uh, or publications, uh, There Are No Monsters on Rancho Buena Vista, will be appearing in the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy 2023, edited by RF Kuang, which comes out October of this year. So, and nice. also, the Hacienda comes out in paperback in the end of September. So keep an eye out for that if you prefer, as I do, the uh, sublime form that is the trade paperback. <laughs> Thanks so much, right. Isabel. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All good things. Here we are at the end again. But there's some stuff you should probably know before you go. First, consider heading over to beyondthetrope.com and checking out their podcast. It's a lot of fun. Giles and Michelle have been around for nearly a decade now, I think, having fun chats with writers, artists, actors, and more. They put out a new episode every Tuesday and have something like 430 overall in the can, I think, as of this recording. It might be 431, I don't know. But that means there's plenty there for you to dive into. Second, if you liked this episode of The Functional Nerds, consider giving us a couple of stars on your favorite podcast platform or posting about this episode, or any of our episodes, on your favorite social media platform. Tell your friends about us. Have them come over. We would really appreciate that part. If you buy a book mentioned on the podcast, let us know on social media. Tag us. Tag the author. That's always so much fun, and it really, really drives home that we help sell books every once in a while. Now, if you really, really, really enjoyed this episode, you could head over to patreon.com slash functional nerds and give us a couple of bucks. I mean, that helps to keep the lights on. We like that. It's kind of hard to podcast in the dark. You can get access to some cool stuff like a pretty engaged and vibrant super secret Facebook group, a monthly virtual hangout, or even an extra episode. It's called the Just Us episode of the podcast, and it's exclusively at this point for our Patreon backers. So if you just want to hear Tracy and I talk about stuff, that might be where you need to go. Mr. Carpiers, you got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. If you've if you've never listened to the podcast, there there's there's two different styles here. There's there's Tracy who does prep work and comes up with some very thoughtful questions, and then oh squirrel! Oh, for God's sake, Patrick Louise! <laughs> Are you okay with me recording you today for the purposes of this podcast? Okay, that's probably a good enough signal. <laughs> when someone comes up to me and says, "Hey, I really love what you do," I'm like. I'm sorry, do you know who I, like, I think you have me confused with someone else. The whiz bang and the gosh wow and the sense of wonder stuff. My favorite thing about time travel is I actually had a time travel joke for you guys, but you didn't like it. I'm so excited.